Welcome to a special edition of the Computer Weekly Downtime Upload Podcast. I'm Cliff Saron and my special guest today is Ilias Khan, who is CEO of Quantinium. Ilias, thank you very much for taking part in today's podcast. Just to get the ball rolling, would you mind giving our audience a little background about yourself and a quick overview of Quantinium, please? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And Quantinium is the world's leading quantum computing company. And we are also, as it happens, the world's leading integrated quantum computing company, which means that we are a full stack uh, computing firm in the way in which full stack is traditionally used for classical computers. I know that later on we might get into what the differences are between a quantum and a classical computer. Mm. But Quantinium is the result of a merger between Honeywell Quantum Solutions, which was the business that Honeywell, which is a large diversified global company listed in the United States, in fact, a constituent of the Dow Jones Industrial. Yes. Honeywell Quantum Solutions was a venture, a deep stealth venture, as well Mm. as a deep science venture within Honeywell, and um, dates back now a decade, over a decade. And then Cambridge Quantum computing, which was a business I founded in 2014. Yes. So these were two separate entities, Cambridge Quantum and Honeywell Quantum Solutions, that came together in a merger or a business combination, more accurately, Mm. that was consummated and completed in November of last year. Uh, Just a word about myself. I was the founder, as I've just said, of Cambridge Quantum. I had the great good fortune of being the founding chairman of the Stephen Hawking Foundation, Mm. which in fact was one of the prompts to the founding of Cambridge Quantum. And I was also um, one of the three people involved in setting up um, Accelerate Cambridge, which is an incubator and accelerator program for deep science organizations that were being spun out of the university. And this now dates back to the end of the I guess they call them the noughties, right? The 29th yes, yes, period. I don't know what the middle bit's called, the tweenies, I guess. But anyway, so um, that's a quick word about myself. And uh, I, I'm based primarily in London, but Continuum is a global organisation. We have quite a lot of people in the United States. We yes. have offices in Oxford, Cambridge and London, in Munich and in Japan. And the only other thing I would quickly say in closing, as far as introductions are concerned, We, um, as Quantinium, operate on the basis of being purists as far as quantum computing is concerned. The only thing we do is quantum computing. We don't do anything else. Okay. Uh, I think I wanted to just go back and rewind a little bit. Uh, You've got such an interesting background, Uh, and particularly from a UK perspective. Where do you think quantum computing is today? Uh, You know, perhaps where it is globally, but also where it is in the UK. And the only reason I ask that is it's it's quite hard when writing, for me, when writing about quantum computing to understand and figure out, well, you're talking about these things, these qubits, and they're unstable or, or, or whatever they, you know, there's, there's a lot going on that there isn't quite, 
I'm trying to draw an analogy with classical computing when, you know, where were things in the first days of classical computing and how far along did it take before, uh, you know, we had the, the Leo, which was the first commercial computer, uh, you know, that ran, ran a proper application. And it, it's interesting to look at quantum computing and see where things are today, because it still feels very much like science. Yeah, no, I think that uh, it's an entirely fair question. In fact, coming from um, coming from you, I think it's exactly the right question. Um, and look, I've spent a few years now um, trying to understand how to address the question by being, first of all, respectful to the you know profound nature of the industrial revolution that we are currently living through. Mm. But at the same time, you know, using the kind of analogies that are relevant and which themselves don't dumb things down. You know, analogy is is part of our language. Um, you know, at the end of the day, Cliff, you and I and all the people who are listening to your podcast are limited um, both in, in upper and lower bound by what we understand from the language that is used. So I think it's exactly the right question. So if I may, and I hope I haven't misunderstood it, let, let me give you two or three quick sentences. And why don't you choose um, any one of them if you want to pursue it further? Sure. First of all, I think that we, the United Kingdom, hmm. if not the leader, are a leader in this technology. And you will find people that are either British themselves or who went through the system here, particularly the tertiary education system in computer science and quantum information theory, mm. who lead globally the effort. In fact, we as a, a tiny little nation that would get lost in California or Texas are the leaders in this technology in much the same way at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century this island nation was the leader in the industrial revolution that yes. of course we now all know about and i think that's a really really important point for those who are interested in where we are as a country so that's one sentence hmm. and if you want me to expand upon that i would be delighted to do so <laughs> but not you know not unless you tell me that you want to talk about that the second sort of strand or the second long thread um, which you touched upon is, you know, wh where are we um, if we want to use the analogy of classical compute, which takes its roots from the point at which Turing really uh, started to think about these things and mm. people like Claude Shannon and von Neumann and many, many, many others who um, are the titans of bringing it to life during the 50s and the 60s and thereafter, yes. you know, where are we in that context? So I, I take a, um, a view which I think is, is, is hopefully useful, and I'll make two points which um, in this sentence. Number one, you know, I'm old enough to remember when mobile telephones first appeared in 87 and 88 in mm, Britain. Yes. And at that point in time, Carl uh, Cliff rather, um, I think that there was very much unawareness, you know, for the two or three years prior to the um, mobile phone, you know, the big bricks that were mostly in, in cars because of the continuous need for the charge, the electric charge, mm. you know, somebody somewhere had designed the handset, somebody somewhere had put up the, uh, the, the towers, somebody somewhere had actually connected the dots. 
And all of that was going on and we were blissfully unaware. You know, society at large didn't know that it was going to happen. It just happened. Yes. That doesn't mean that the science and the engineering hadn't advanced. It just meant that it wasn't yet in the public domain. Mm. And I think that we are at that tipping point. Uh, the number of articles and the number of references and the debate about quantum computers is now in the public domain. And these machines actually exist and we can program them and we can do stuff with them. Now, the last bit of what you've said, of course, is 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 the engineering bit. And, uh, and, and here I, I want to be careful because I think it is too easy to, 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 to use terminology and jargon. I mean, if I was in a conference of bankers and they were talking about all kinds of things, I wouldn't have a clue what they're talking about. If I was at a, a, a convention um, that was talking about, for example, something I am interested in, which is drug discovery, I wouldn't know. Everything's got jargon attached to it. Yes, It yes. doesn't mean that it's inaccessible. And with quantum computing, we are at the point where the taming and the management of qubits so what I mean by that is the generation of a qubit, because a qubit is a physical thing. It's not a contrived thing. It's not a transistor. It's a physical thing. So the generation of a qubit, the manipulation of a qubit through these logic gates, and then the measurement of a qubit in order to ascertain a result, those three things are now engineered. We no longer need a scientific breakthrough in order to get to the point where we can find usefulness. I mean, we find usefulness today, but more and more credible organizations, and I'll name Google, and I'll name IBM, and I'll name Amazon, and I'll name Continuum as the, the global giants, have got roadmaps which are transparent. And for those who are interested, this information is in the public domain. Yes. You don't have to guess. Now, you can have an opinion as to whether the roadmap is aggressive or not aggressive, but these are out in the public domain. And I would finish now by saying, I'm not aware, because it never has existed, mm. at any time in human history, that nation state after nation state has a national program which is focused only on one technology. Japan, China, France, Germany, the United States, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Italy, you name it, country after country has got a national program in some cases going back decades. Yes. This is serious. This is not science fiction. <laughs> so Elisa, I just want to go back to, um, I think it was the second point you made. And really, I'm just thinking about the audience of Computer Weekly are IT decision makers. Uh, and they have seen uh, technology abstracted further and further so that it's much easier now to achieve amazing things almost at the click of a button, an API call or whatever, you know, it's, you can, I mean, I, I remember just playing around with um, some of the Google uh, machine learning and literally what one, one call in Python and you can do something absolutely that was, be, would have, you know, 10 years ago, that would have been, I reckon, you know, would have required a heck of a lot of work. But today it's, you know, anyone can do it, child's play, whatever. So um, what, what I'm trying to get at is, 
we we understand what the classical co computer can do and where, where we are today with that. But what we don't see is, what I'm not seeing is, you know, from this jump between, what you know, from the qubits to something that you can start achieving amazing things. So I wanted to start first with the definition of, of the qubit and how that differs from the transistor, but then exploring a bit further about how that is going to evolve to a point where we can do some amazing things that are possible on classical computing today. And and obviously it'll go beyond because of what yeah, the, yeah, the quantum yeah. has been promised. Yeah. Um, well, well, first of all, I mean, the, the, the good news is that quantum information theory has been taught in computer science um, faculties around the world for at least 30 and in some cases 40 years. Mm. The good news is that there is no mystery about what I'm about to say. There's no guesswork involved. There's no speculation. This is now um, something which goes hand in hand with quantum mechanics, which you will have heard many times people say to you is the single most tested of physics theories ever. So any sense of mystery about quantum actually relates a little bit to what I would call the metaphysical question of, of, of why does it work like that? So not the what, but the why. So I'm going to put the why to one side. Mm. It's a bit like, you know, the um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The, the answer is 42. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, so we're not going to go down that route and we're going to stick to stuff that um, is relatively straightforward to understand. OK, so you asked me to start with uh, the qubit and the story is, um, is, is pretty much now well understood as being one that was raised by three or four people, Yuri Manin and, um, and, and Richard Feynman, both of whom, well, Yuri Manin's still alive, uh, Feynman's now dead, but these were physicists and mathematicians mm. who were interested in really asking very profound questions about what can and can't be done, and whether it was heat dissipation in the management of what we now might call computer science, um, or whether it was um, the simulation of, of, of systems, complex systems where existing um, machines, even then and now, frankly, run out of steam. Yes. Um, you know, whichever way you look at it, mm. you get smaller and smaller and smaller in scale. And yes. Feynman started thinking about the idea that if you were to simulate a quantum system and you used quantum states to simulate it, you would then be 100% accurate. And of course, he was right. Yeah. So what is a quantum state? A quantum state is a quantum particle, and it could be an electron or it could be a photon. And at that point in time, well, even today, I would say, mm. the human mind is very, very well capable of thinking at a macro level. So if I show you an apple and I tell you what it is, there's no guesswork involved because you can see what an apple is yes. and you can intuit it. In fact, if you just read the label A-double-P-L-E, you don't need to see a picture. You know what it is. Mm. And similarly, you know, we know what the moon is and we can do very well looking at macro stuff because if I told you that you know, we're 100 million light years away from something, you can actually kind of understand that that's a big number. But when we start going small, our minds don't intuit. 
And that really is a starting point with some of the problems we have with quantum mechanics and quantum information theory, because as was discovered 100 odd years ago, the rules of nature, the very rules that govern what happen at the infinitesimal level are different from the rules that govern the macro level. So Einsteinian and Newtonian physics are governed by rules that don't translate or map across. Okay. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter? This matters because logic, and, and here I'm gonna say something slightly controversial, but not um, controversial to the point of a debate, but controversial mm. in the use of language. When Turing and others, started to think about the way in which information can be managed, they resorted to the manipulation of what we describe as first order logic. Mm. And all of your audience will understand that all these gates that we use, the AND gate and the NOT gate and the yes. OR gate, these are all based on logic. And this is something we as humans understand and we rely upon, which is also one of the reasons why for all the magic that computers represent, they do very little. There's very little that gets done. And I would argue that artificial intelligence today doesn't exist. I'm in the Noam Chomsky camp, which is we've gone very little further than banging two stones together to get a spark. <laughs> yes, we can be impressed by the fact that these things happen, mm. but they're not accountable. They're opaque. They're aggressive regressive there is nothing that you can rely upon with all these expensive machines so when you and i say to alexa hey alexa what time is it it tells you what you already kind of know except it burns up in enough electricity to power Reykjavik for a week mm. to tell you what you already know so all these rules that govern the way that we do things are contrived first order logic is contrived it's a human artifact the transistor, therefore, that allows the binary system to be instantiated, the on, off, the zero, one, is a result of that thinking. And as magnificent as it is, and as much as we enjoy watching YouTube and talking to our grandma, that's what it is. Hmm. Now, in a quantum computer, the information that we embed in the equivalent of the transistor is embedded not in a contrived artifice, it is embedded in a physical thing. It could be a photon, it could be an electron. Now, when, when we look at um, the way in which the mathematics uh, uh, is, is, is reflecting the rules of quantum mechanics, mm. we soon realize that the rules of logic don't apply. There are different rules. I'm not just talking about it not being commutative. There are other things as well. In fact, the rules of associativity don't um, uh, come about. And we haven't even started about quantum mechanical features, such as superposition and supers, such as entanglement. Now, I said earlier that every profession, every speciality has its jargon. Yes. Lawyers have their jargon. Tort, I don't even know what tort is. Bankers have their jargon when they talk about LIBOR rates. I have a freaking clue what a LIBOR rate is. Mm. So it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that we're not familiar with them. And just as we can get familiar with jargon in quantum information theory, it's entirely possible for an educated person and a curious person to get uh, acquainted. Now, my last point, which is 
So what? Well, what we now know and what has been proven mm. is the boundary of what can and can't be done computationally, because a quantum computer is still a computer, mm. those boundaries shift. And we don't know. We don't know. If anybody tells you they know how it will affect humanity, they are, well, you know, give them a cup of tea. <laughs> we don't know, just as we didn't know when the first Model T Ford came about or the first aeroplane started to, you know, lift off and the first computers came, the first telephone. We don't know. Hmm. We understand the direction of travel. And what we do know is that this is a industrial revolution, the likes of which has never, ever, ever happened before. And why? Why do I say that? A quantum computer will allow us to create materials, for example, that are unable to be created. How many decades will we be trying to solve cancer? How many decades will we be looking at nitrogen fixation? What about carbon sequestration? What about solar power and batteries? These are just some of the obvious things. There is no debate that this can happen. The debate is, is it going to happen next year or in three years time or in seven years time or in 10 years time? And by the way, remember, 10 years is less if you look in the rearview mirror than the London Olympics. Mm. We're not talking about that long. Why is quantum computing a revolution? Well, a quantum computing revolution um, is not the same, obviously, as an industrial revolution, but quantum computing represents an industrial revolution in much the same way as when machines were used in order to do things that human beings could not and fundamentally, fundamentally change the nature of how we go about living our lives. And a quantum computer will shift the dial in terms of the way in which we as humanity live our lives. And the reason is as follows. First of all, we shift the boundaries of what can and can't be done computationally. Hmm. If the only use of a quantum computer is to fix the nitrogen fixation problem or carbon sequestration or curing cancer and other such endemic uh, problems that we have with disease control and disease management, that in itself has profound implications. Yes. Yeah, I can see that. And, and that is not just move, you know, moving the needle a little bit on trading options or something. It, it, it is not the same. But, you know, um, I will say, though, Cliff, and I, I mean, greater minds than mine have been involved in this, there's a fabulous um, document which was published by the US government as part of the congressional bill when the United States passed the quantum computing congressional bill. Mm. I think it's called the Quantum Information Technologies um, Bill. And that document in its preface is very similar to the document that the European community and Germany and Britain have produced as well in support of their respective quantum programs. And it goes to a very good degree of depth and in language that is very accessible to explain why quantum computing is different from anything that we've witnessed in our lifetimes. In fact, Angela Merkel, when she was chancellor of Germany, said that the existential future of the German people in terms of their ability to enjoy the kind of lifestyle that they would aspire to depends upon Germany being a leader in quantum computing. I mean, you don't really get people talking about that with some blooming fintech aberration or something. No, like. no. 
So anyway, so these things are very widely disseminated and very easy to access. This is not just me saying it. There's lots and lots of collateral out there. I like what you mentioned earlier about AI. So it's almost like you don't believe that it's actually a, uh, a technology that's going to make a big difference. Well, I didn't say that. No, 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 no. So very recently, the you know the, the sort of one of the grand viziers uh, of, of of the intellectual world, a guy called Noam Chomsky, and 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 I'm sure that many of your mm. listeners and readers will know who who Chomsky is, came for a rare interview and was talking about um, you know how advances in 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 AI on the one hand can appear very exciting and 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 the speed up in computational power is very exciting but actually if you think about what we can and can't do we haven't really shifted the the needle and the problem is that what we can do is now opaque and non-accountable and that's more dangerous i'm not doubting that computers will in fact think about um well the people who invent the systems that we will use on a quantum computer uh, my hope is that we will have artificial intelligence that is accountable so that it is repeatable and it is not merely regressive and it is not something which is a black box. You know, th these are problems that everybody understands. Mm. They're not, you know, I'm not making these things up. Now, when we talk about these vast systems, GPT-3 and everything that goes with it yes. and language processing, of course, as you know, Cliff, the, the, the real test of whether something called AI exists is, is language processing and whether things are meaning aware or not. There's not a computer nor any concatenation of supercomputers that could be plugged in together that understand what you and I are talking about. OK, so let's move on a little bit. Um, what are the challenges? What are the challenges holding back? Um, the uh, the development of quantum computers and the adoption of quantum computing. Yeah, so the challenge is um, there's a really interesting um, 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 development, I think, which has happened during late 2021 and we're currently living through, which is the emergence of a stack. So if you think about it in classical terms, you've got the hardware and you want to be able to manipulate the hardware efficiently. So you've got the beginnings of control systems and middleware. Mm. And then above that, you've got the compilers and everything that talks to the systems around it. And suddenly, lo and behold, you get the emergence of an operating system. Now, in order for an operating system to actually be real, it's got to have the machinery underneath it that does what it's meant to do. So for the first time, um, as far as quantum computers are concerned, we have a union between machines that can do the bare minimum and systems above and below that can actually be pulled together that might resemble a proto-operating system. And what that does is lift the lid on the kind of timeline and roadmap and challenges, which I think you're chatting about in more granular terms than just arm wavy things saying, oh, well, you know, qubits decohere very quickly and how do we manage that or when can you get error correcting systems that are going to be robust enough for us to run um, um, calculations again and again and get the same answer, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the other side of the, 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 the equation, you've got the software development, because up until recently, 
um, quantum software has been very theoretical and never been testable. Mm. And it's only when you get the marriage of actual devices with actual algorithms that are compiled effectively that you can start measuring results. Yes. And the combination of those developments, which of course represent many, many, many millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of global investment, if not billions, and the last few years have started to come together in the last year or two. And I would say that the challenges that uh, arise out of that, the challenges that we can identify are kind of um, in, 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 in three very, very convenient sort of pots. One of them is the engineering challenge. Mm -hmm. There is no consensus yet on the best way of generating a qubit. Some people think that you need to use photonics. Other people think you need superconducting qubits. Yet another person might say that you need a trapped iron approach. Others might say that you need neutral or cold atoms. So there are a number of ways in which you can generate qubits. And that, therefore, is a really interesting development over the course of the next few years to see which, in fact, is going to be good or whether there are uh, many differences in terms of outlook and outcome between the different uh, types of qubits. So that's one challenge. Yes. And then within that, of course, there's a subsystem of challenges which are all about coherence times and how long a qubit lasts and mm. does it matter? You know, how do you define a good quality qubit? But earlier this year, for the first time ever, we were able to exhibit and prove uh, on a repeated basis the entanglement of two logical qubits which were more effective and more efficient than physical qubits. So that's quite a big breakthrough. Um, the second bit in terms of challenge is scaling. So instead of having one of these machines that does half a job and it takes a year for there to be two machines and three and four and five so that you yes. can actually yes. start to. Uh, and that, of course, is, is an engineering challenge and mm. a capital challenge because these things cost money. And then the third bit, which is where my excitement is the greatest, is um, looking at um, deriving usefulness out of machines. In the classical compute industry, you've got the 80-20 rule. So 80% of the value is derived from the software, 20% from the hardware. Mm. Um, you know, whether you, you believe it's 75-25 or 90-10 doesn't really matter. It's in that sort of order of magnitude. Yeah, sure. And I think for the first time, we're beginning to see the development of actual software, which can be used in a formal manner because people are anticipating quantum advantage in certain areas over the next few years. When I say few, I mean no less than two and more, no more than five. Okay, wow. Um, <clears throat> I just want to go back to software development, actually. Um, and in terms of the challenges, and it's going to touch on a few things that you mentioned earlier as well. Uh, I mean, you were previously talking about... Um, binary and the transistor and first order logic uh, and, and that is uh, something that you know the software developers sort of kind of understand right you know uh, if then else type stuff uh, logic gates whatever now when once you have provided the software developer kits and extrapolated over and over and over beyond way above the actual hardware of the of the quantum computer will it will these machines simply be treated as supercomputers as faster versions of computers because you're no longer talking about well what can this thing do that's really special 
it's just uh, an API call. Well, I mean, what's your view on that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I have a rule never to answer questions I don't, <laughs> that I don't know. I mean, yeah, you've got me stumped there because I think um, the, 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 I'm, I'm happy to give you an opinion and it will be speculative. Um, I think that the only, well, actually, let me take a different tack. It's, it's a very, very good question. And I, first of all, would like to say that um, as we get into the middle of 2023 and, 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 and perhaps early 2024, the systems will be sophisticated enough and robust enough for a proper answer to be given. Mm. But what I can say is that the, um, the, the, the great focus um, for all of the serious players, ourselves, and so we say Google and, 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 and our friends at Microsoft and IBM and AWS, I think the idea here is to try and make the programming of uh, quantum computers as easy, accessible, and as abstracted as a classical computer, because that is the way the world works. Yes. To that end, um, the one tangible landmark that I can point you to is a software development toolkit called Ticket, T-K-E-T. And Ticket is an open source software. And believe it or not, there are now, we think, more than a million people around the world that use Ticket. Now, is that a milestone? Well, in one respect, how many people just in Britain use software development kits mm. in classical compute? And I bet you it's certainly a million, if not more. Yes. So in one respect, that's not very many. But in another, it's gone from zero this time last year to a million. And I bet you it's on its way to 10 million and then 20 and then 50, then 100. And it is things like Ticket that will allow quantum computers to become democratized and taken advantage of. So that the breakthroughs in application can then be made by smart people that you and I have not yet met. Mm. And Ticket, T-K-E-T, has another rather wonderful attribute to it. It abstracts everything. You just do an instruction set. Well, you access an instruction set, which is the equivalent of what you said earlier about an API call. Now, of course, it's not quite as sophisticated um, because, uh, well, we, we, we don't have the plethora of machines yet. Mm. But it is the foundation which allows everything to be built. And I would encourage anybody who is interested in this to just quickly Google Ticket, T-K-E-T. There's a GitHub page. There's lots of resource. And it fits in. It is language agnostic. It fits in with all of the um, ways in which people like, for example, Amazon, who have got something called Bracket, and IBM have got something called Kiskit. Yes. It fits in and makes them better. It makes them better in the sense that the routing and the optimizing is already a part of the system. So that if you run something on Kiskit and you want it to be faster, i.e. a lower number of circuits, you just do that via ticket. Oh, that's amazing. I'll, I'll definitely look that up. Um, okay, uh, so just moving on a little bit. I mean, we've talked about some of the benefits. What would you say are the risks? And should we be concerned? Well, I spend a lifetime worrying about these things. I really thank, well, first of all, thank you for asking the question. It's very rare 
that people like you ask that question, and I'm grateful that you 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 have. Um, so I very recently got involved in something called the Topos Institute, where we look at the use of emerging technologies for the benefit of all and not the benefit of some. And I think if there is a lesson from COVID and a lesson from the last 25 years when we were asleep at the wheel, it is exactly that we must be alert to how we can democratise and make sure that humanity as a whole benefits and not, you know, some small uh, subset of people. And to me, that, that is the biggest challenge of this industrial revolution. How can we make sure that these benefits are there for everybody? Now, within that particular sentence, and it's a very easy sentence to say, but unpicking that um, is very, very, very difficult and very challenging because the systems and the, uh, particularly the research and the commercialization systems that we live in are driven only by the profit motive at the moment. Now, I'm not saying that that's good or bad. I'm not making a judgment about that. What I'm saying is we need something different. Quantum computers are so revolutionary that it requires a revolution in the way that we as human beings and societies approach that. So that would be my honest, straightforward uh, response to your question. I'm happy if you wish to go a bit deeper, but it really is a very, very important point. Uh, I mean, in terms of the the use of this technology for military purposes, uh, cyber attacks um, and those sorts of things should we be concerned that you know that there's that there's going to be a lot of negative coming out of quantum computing a lot of negative applications potentially harmful to humanity well i said earlier in the um in 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 the interview that there's an enormous amount of collateral on this i appreciate that for some people they might be listening or reading about this for the first time but most of the nation state quantum programs, uh, particularly those in the United States, the United Kingdom, China, were originally born out of a concern that that particular country would be vulnerable to other countries um, who had quantum systems that would break down its, um, encryption and therefore secrets and communication would become vulnerable. And each country and each set of allied countries is rightfully concerned about that. So what I'm when I say yes to your answer, I'm not saying anything particularly novel or revolutionary. This has been understood for a long time. And the reason for that is that one of the only algorithms thus far to be proven is an algorithm that shows how a quantum computer can find the prime factors of these numbers that are used in encryption uh, in a protocol that's called RSA and which represents to many people the, well, not to many people, it is the backbone of how we protect our systems today. And if a quantum computer can break that down very easily, which it is provably now the case, um, we need to be ready for that. In fact, Cliff, just earlier this year, the United States um, issued a directive, as in fact have the United Kingdom, that we have to be quantum secure and we have to start now to be quantum secure. So there's both an adversarial as well as a defensive nature to that particular aspect of the debate. Well, Ilias, thank you ever so much for taking part in the podcast. It's a fantastic conversation we've had. I've really enjoyed you being a guest today. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.